listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 197. In this episode, we are talking to Raj Patel about COVID-19, what it says about our broken food system, and why it's bad for labor. But first, the news. When school districts across the country shut down and shifted their classes online due to the pandemic, it seemed like the education system in many communities was suddenly distilled into a daily Zoom call between frustrated teachers and fidgety students. It takes a lot more than just a teacher and a broadband connection to make school happen under lockdown. The Minnesota legislature is currently weighing a bill that would ensure that regular wages would be maintained for all school support workers. These include paraprofessionals, bus drivers, food service workers, and office and maintenance staff. As hourly wage earners, they faced much more economic uncertainty than teachers did when schools were shuttered indefinitely. The new bill, passed this week by the Minnesota House, would ensure that their jobs and benefits are protected from layoffs. Many of these workers are still working to facilitate classroom learning, yet their job duties have shifted considerably as they have migrated into the digital space. Hourly school workers say that they are often overlooked even during normal times, and now that schools have closed, it's even more crucial that their incomes are protected as they help teachers and students navigate distance learning. School support workers are crucial for helping the most vulnerable children keep up with their lessons. Those workers are also often coming from the same demographic groups as the most vulnerable students, especially in low-income communities. I spoke with Sarah Nichols, a media technology testing assistant for the Roseville area schools. She's also a member of Ask Me Council 5. Recently, um, in the Minnesota House of Representatives, we were able to pass legislation paying hourly school district employees. Um, So in the state of Minnesota, when the governor shut down schools, he um, also asked that we care for the children of essential workers. So what our paraprofessionals and clerical have been doing over the last two months are things like um, distributing 2,000 meals per day, caring for childly or for the children of healthcare workers. And um, for us, this is an issue of equity because our workers are diverse, many of them being black and brown, first-generation Americans. Uh, We're often part-time workers, hourly workers, living paycheck to paycheck. So being laid off, we'd be left with not enough to stay above water. So um, I think what we were asking and what we were saying to the House of Representatives was just that we we love the kids just as much. We provide as valuable experiences to the kids as anyone in the district. And we're doing the frontline work and we deserve to know that we're going to be paid throughout the pandemic. We haven't passed this in the Senate. So we are still asking for the Senate to take up the legislation. Um, My district personally has made a commitment to to keep all of our workers whole. But across the state of Minnesota, there's many districts where people are at risk of being laid off. A lot of the people that are most at risk right now are those whose income comes from or their positions pay comes from fee-based programs. So when, when, when schools closed, right away teachers knew what their job was teachers knew that they need to go home and they need to prepare for distance learning it's a lot of work it's really hard Um, there's going to be a lot of obstacles but they knew exactly what was expected of them as far as uh their 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 safety right and their their paycheck um but the people who are most vulnerable in this are those that aren't 
licensed teachers because then the school district pivoted and looked at us and said, what are we going to do with you guys? You know, and a lot, my district said, we want to pay you. So we have to put you to work, but other districts maybe didn't have that same um, goal, but when they decide, okay, we need to find things for you to do. Now we're the ones, the paraprofessionals, the clerical, the TAs, um, the nutrition service workers, um, we're the ones that are, they have to get creative with. And sometimes that creativity is going to put us in a place where um, it's just a different role and we're going to be on the front lines and more vulnerable. And also um, not knowing, okay, are they going to cut our hours and things like that. So the teachers and licensed staff uh, are, are experiencing school closure very differently than the non-licensed staff. Yeah. Does that mean that you, you're still being asked to put in hours through what, the, assisting with the distance learning? My position, I'm what's called a media technology testing assistant. So my role has always been to, I'm support staff to the library, and also um, I'm in charge of getting everything ready for testing. And with this pandemic, there's no state testing, right? <laughs> and there's no library happening. So we knew right away on day one, my librarian and myself, we said, oh, we need to barcode these Chromebooks. We need to make sure our iPads are ready. And so what I've been doing over the last two months is is tech support to families. And so I've gotten iPads, Chromebooks, all of those things ready and distributed them. And now I'm continuing to do tech support. So my job is a little different than the other people in my um, in my union. I have paraprofessionals who they are one week they're helping with the child care um, because we're caring for essential workers. And then the next week they're working with um, special education case managers and uh, gen ed teachers to help support what the teachers are doing with the distance learning. There's lots of conversations around teachers and the role that teachers have in kids' kids education. And um, one of the things that isn't talked about is the the role that paraprofessionals play in our in our kids' education, especially when we look at the racial and ethnic disparities. The Department of Education in Minnesota, they really want to center racial equity. And my and my district also talks about centering racial equity. And we as a state work diligently to increase teachers of color and indigenous teachers, but we can't overlook the fact that people who reflect the ethnic and racial diversity of our students are the paraprofessionals in these districts. So the the importance of this is just that um, the students uh, will disproportionately be affected by layoffs of those paraprofessionals who actually have lived experiences similar to their own. That was Sarah Nichols, a media technology testing assistant for Roseville Area Schools in Minnesota. We've talked a bunch about workers being deemed essential in this moment, and even the introduction of an essential workers' bill of rights on the federal level, where, of course, it is doomed to languish. But in New York City, the epicenter of the pandemic in the U.S., at least for now, maybe it is possible to give those workers some extra rights. I talked to New York City Council member Brad Lander about the Bill of Rights he's sponsoring for the workers making the city run during the pandemic, and how do we think about expanding those rights to all? So, you know, every night at 7, New Yorkers, like, go out on our stoops and, like, bang pots and pans and cheer and scream and, like, you really feel it, I have to say. Like, it is really a beautiful feature of what we're doing right now. And yet that same set of workers, like, 
the folks delivering the food we're ordering at the restaurants can't take a paid day off if they're sick. And the folks, um, you know, on the Amazon warehouse floor get fired for speaking up so that they won't speak up about health and safety conditions. And, you know, not just Amazon workers, but like doctors with Mm -hmm. gag orders and getting fired, too. And the disconnect between the the like gratitude that we feel and the actual conditions of that work are just appallingly large and this is an effort to do what the New York City Council can do about it. Right. And so what what are the rights in the Bill of Rights? So we can't do everything, you know, the right. federal government could could do a lot more. So the, you know, Warren Kana Essential Worker Bill of Rights is what's needed to like reset things, but uh, and we can't even do what a state could do, so I'd love to see the state legislature do some things. But but we actually can do a few things that haven't been done before. So, um, you know, that food delivery worker, you know, working for DoorDash or Instacart or, um, uh, you know, that person is, is, is working for a company, and they obviously deserve paid sick leave just like any other worker working for a company. And the fact that some clever – uh, tech types at Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and Instacart figured out like a way into the name of technology actually just to offload all their responsibilities as employers um, mm-hmm. is no good. And we in New York City, we can't um, reclassify people properly and make them classified as employees, but we do have control over our uh, sick leave law. New York's got a, a pretty good uh, safe and sick leave law that gives workers paid uh, sick days. And this bill would extend that law to cover uh, gig workers and independent contractors who are, 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 are controlled by, whose work is controlled by the company that hires them. It uses what's called the ABC test that I know you've covered many times on, on Belabors. Mm-hmm. And it says, Workers who don't meet that ABC test, who aren't genuinely freelancers or independent contractors, would be right. owed sick leave by the company that hired them, just like everybody else. So Uber and Lyft and Amazon Flex and nail salon technicians and day laborers and contracted home care workers, right. uh, hundreds of thousands of workers in New York City who are now denied sick leave would have it. So that's uh, number one. Number two is to really deal with this issue of whistleblowing and folks who have been fired for speaking out about health and safety conditions. And the sort of creative way we're doing that is with what are called just cause protections against unfair firing. Most American workers not in a union uh, are at-will employees. They can be fired without notice and without a reason. It's kind of ridiculous. It's not the way it is in most European countries, but that's American employment. and this would change that. It would say for essential workers. And, and this idea really was brought to us by fast food workers who've been fighting for this for a couple of years. And we were on the cusp before the crisis, actually, just in February. We had a hearing on a bill to protect fast food workers from being fired on the whim of their bosses and give them what's called just cause protection. You can only be fired with a good reason. And this would extend that to all essential workers and then also clarify that speaking truthfully about health and safety conditions in your workplace is not a good reason, is not a just cause for termination. So, and that one really helps people speak out about conditions. Like it helps fast food workers speak out when they're being sexually harassed by their boss but are afraid to to complain because they fear they'll be fired without cause. Um, it would help that doctor, you know, in the, uh, you know, in the nurse, in the, uh, nursing homes, but also in emergency rooms who were fired for speaking about lack of PPE. 
um, and it would help workers like Chris Smalls and other Amazon workers. You can grieve, you know, retaliation under the National Labor Relations Act, but it might take a year before you get your get your job back. And this would give you a local right uh, to only be fired for a good reason. And then finally, and in some ways most ambitiously, is a premium pay law, a bill that would require employers to pay essential workers uh, some bonus pay for their essential work. It only covers larger employers over a hundred a hundred people, so it just doesn't get the kind of corner bodega or small grocery store, but it does get uh, Amazon, um, and they would be required to pay uh, to pay bonus pay to essential workers during the pandemic. So, in terms of you know, now we're still in the middle of a crisis, but everybody's attention seems to be turning to like when we reopen things. Um, yeah. How does this apply to workers? Sort of now and then how do we determine who gets it as more things start to maybe reopen? So the sick leave bill is actually um, not pinned off the emergency or a definition of essential workers. The, mm-hmm. the sick leave for gig workers says anybody who's not independent, genuinely independent under the ABC test now gets New York City safe and sick leave. It's retroactive to January 1st so that we People would have a little bit of sick leave built up from the time they've already worked this year. But otherwise, mm-hmm. it's just a change in the law that goes forward, and um, it doesn't have a sunset date, and it doesn't rely on a definition of essential workers. It just covers everybody. Who, and so right now, it would give sick leave to food delivery workers and mm-hmm. uh, for hire vehicle drivers. But like nail salon technicians, they're out of work right, right now. Um, but when they come back to work, they're going to yeah. be anxious and um, and just like everybody else needs sick leave so they could stay home with one of their family members who's sick or if they themselves are sick. The, um, the, the premium pay bill, I think, is the one around which there's going to be sort of the most set of questions because how yeah. to decide, you know, when a shift is really something that is uh, essential work versus yeah. normal work, as you've pointed out. Like, I, I don't know, it's not that easy to figure out what the difference between those right. things are. Most people yeah. wouldn't go to work if they didn't have to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and look, one irony right now, and I, you know, this was just really brought to me by talking to some of these workers. I mean, mm-hmm. some of these folks, like, would be making more if they were receiving unemployment uh, mm-hmm. under the pandemic unemployment assistance. And I'm thrilled that, you know, uh, folks managed to get unemployment assistance to be enough that people could, could pay their rent and, and not starve on. But the irony that the people were like so praising as essential workers are making less than that is really, um, so you could think of some creative ways. Some of this is, I think, where you'd want to focus this is on the on low wage workers. I mean, the bill is only covers non salaried uh, folks, but there might even be some more focus to do so that you could really target that bonus pay to a set of folks who you know it's embarrassing what they uh, what they're being paid. And one that I hope the bill gets amended on. I mean, I'm a sponsor of the being introduced bill, but I still want to see it amended. Is that the just cause bill? uses the definition of Governor Cuomo's executive order. It's pretty broad. It lays out a pretty broad set of essential workers. And the bill that's currently drafted is only a a, a protection that lasts as long as the executive order lasts. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I'd like to see that change. I mean, why it would be okay for Amazon to fire Chris Small, you know, okay, you know, they couldn't fire Chris Small during the pandemic, but then it'd be just right. fine if they did the next day. You know, right. I hope that this will get us along. And, and the fast food bill, in particular, fast food workers will be covered by this bill, but their, their bill was just to make it so that fast food workers had just cause protections. And we need to work to make sure that that lasts you know, into the next phase where there'll also be a lot of uh, labor tumult and people who need to be able to win protections uh, and whistleblow as necessary. But I hope we could also just make that last permanently and make it part of the step towards shifting the American economy so workers mm-hmm. aren't just totally disposable in the way that at will employment makes them. That was New York City Council Member Brad Lander. Harvard University recently made headlines by taking $9 million in stimulus money from the big federal coronavirus bailout package and then promptly returning it after critics, including President Trump, questioned whether such a hugely wealthy institution really needed to draw from federal largesse during the pandemic. The controversy over elite universities like Harvard feeding from the federal trowel certainly raised questions about how fairly that money is being distributed. Yet within Harvard itself, not all aspects of the institution are exactly flush with cash. Recently, Harvard graduate student employees renewed their push for a fair contract, citing the economic uncertainty induced by the pandemic and the fact that many of them are still hard at work despite the shuttering of the campus. Their call for a fair contract coincided with the two-year anniversary of Harvard's recognition of the Harvard Graduate Students' Union, part of the UIW. Many graduate instructors and research assistants are facing financial peril now because they've been cut off from their research, as labs, libraries, and other campus resources have been shuttered, while employment prospects for post-graduation are looking especially dismal as academia continues to suffer from the economic downturn. With the backing of Senator Elizabeth Warren and Congressional Representative Andy Levin, the union is calling once again for the administration to bargain in good faith with graduate workers. I spoke with Nishant Kishore, a graduate student in epidemiology at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, who, incidentally, is currently researching how diseases spread. I specifically work on mobility, so getting a better understanding of how people move and how that affects the transmission dynamics of diseases. And as you might imagine, uh, in this specific epidemic with social distancing measures that are kind of being put into place heterogeneously, we really are working around the clock to get a better understanding of how the population is actually changing their behavior uh, and also how that specific change in behavior, the social isolation, is affecting how the disease is transmitted. The fact that we've kind of been uh, working nonstop on this has really shown uh, or highlighted the fact that a lot of the research, a lot of the knowledge that comes out of an institution like Harvard is really driven by the graduate students um, and by the student workers who are really producing so much of this and are really the labor force that generates a lot of this. Um, specifically, it highlighted uh, sort of the, the fact that Harvard needs to provide protections uh, in relationship to things like discrimination and harassment and needs to provide uh, adequate health care in the term in in regards to things like mental health, um, you know, something that, again, has come out even more as people are uh, are essentially working extremely long hours um, and oftentimes working those hours uh, in more isolated settings. I'd say over the past couple of years, the university has um, pretty much shown that it doesn't necessarily take these things seriously uh, or these negotiations seriously, and uh, we're 
now in a situation where we're kind of just just waiting and 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 working as much as we can to confront this crisis while at the same time trying to fight to ensure that we have the basic protection needed. Are you currently working under a collective bargaining agreement negotiated by the union? So we don't have a contract right now. It's, it's one of the things that we've been kind of working towards. And that, that's, the, that's the part that the university has not really met with us for or has sort of slow walked. Um, so we're still fighting for that contract. So presumably if you had a CBA, uh, people would be pushing for... Uh, appointments that are stable or that are guaranteed for more than one semester at a time? Yeah, so that, um, things like, uh, there isn't really a clear expectation of, uh, or rather clear definition of what's expected of a given type of worker. So there can be a large amount of heterogeneity in the type of effort that goes um, into it and also heterogeneity in pay. So, uh, for example, I work at the uh, School of Public Health um, our pay is oftentimes much lower, sometimes 62% of what uh, people at other schools or other, you know, the regular uh, graduate student might make just at the same university for doing the exact same job. Um, and one of the strange things the administration has tried to do is include that or codify that in the actual contract to say that that's okay. Um, and it's become one of these points where you really tried to push back to say that we want to make sure that there's nothing in the contract that says okay to have unequal pay. As far as I'm aware, um, Harvard ha- has the largest endowment amongst all of these uh, universities around the world, something around $40 billion. So it, uh, it really doesn't make sense when there are other institutions who are uh, providing protections for their students, who are ensuring that there's continued funding for students, especially in these crisis moments. Um, that Harvard, the the wealthiest of the lot, can't seem to sort of figure that out. That was Nishant Kishore of Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health and a member of the Harvard Graduate Students Union. We heard a lot about general strikes leading up to May Day, but the promised mass strikes didn't quite materialize. As I wrote elsewhere, it is great that people are fired up for worker actions and that workers feel empowered to walk off the job rather than face dire conditions, but we should be realistic about the power that we have and we don't have, and the organizing that is necessary to get to real mass strikes. Bargaining for the common good has been one of the most interesting frameworks to arise from recent worker organizing. Born in Chicago with the Chicago Teachers Union and spread around the country mostly by teachers, but also by some other unions in the public and private sectors, bargaining for the common good is a strategy for bringing the community to the bargaining table along with the workforce. Teachers bargaining for housing for homeless students, more nurses, keeping schools open or shutting them down, things that parents and students want as well as what the teachers need. It's an expansion of demands beyond bread and butter, an expansion of the idea of who belongs at the bargaining table out to the working class as a whole. The Chicago teachers expanded on this strategy, as we discussed on episode 188 with Kenzo Shibata and Lois Wiener, by aligning their contracts with unions representing school staff and park service workers so that there was potential for all three to strike at once, magnifying the effects of any one strike. But what if you could multiply that further? I wrote a piece for The Progressive about a new plan from the Bargaining for the Common Good Network to map union contract expirations around the country, adding in new organizing drives and community organizing campaigns in order to understand where potential for more Chicago moments exist. 
As I noted in that piece, power mapping is a time-honored tool for union organizers, and moments like this one, you know, that whole virus thing, make it more urgent. The COVID-19 pandemic also makes it easier for workers to understand themselves as interconnected and for unions to understand that if they think small, they'll be crushed. As governments look ahead of the pandemic, many of them are already planning austerity and worse. Andrew Cuomo is teaming up with tech billionaires like Bill Gates and Eric Schmidt of Google to try to, quote, reimagine schools and healthcare. But how would it work to fight back if we had what Stephen Lerner, who's one of the organizers behind the map, called a heat map of the country? This is very appropriate for COVID-19, Lerner told me. We're doing a giant jigsaw puzzle together, asking what's going on with my specific employer? Where else is my employer? How does this relate to budget cuts? And how does this relate to wealth? We're creating a roadmap of how workers go from being rhetorically essential to actually being essential in changing the world and our whole future. If people start working on this now, the combination of those demands could reveal what a labor-left vision for the future of the country is. If people start working together geographically, then you go on the offense and have really big fights and the potential for major strikes." End quote. We will post a link to where you can go find that map and add your own union's details to it on the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. Usually, Americans don't give a lot of thought to where our meat comes from. It just somehow materializes, neatly cleaned, filleted, and packaged in plastic, bearing no resemblance to the animal it came from and, of course, no trace of the people who made it. The coronavirus outbreak in the meatpacking labor force has exposed the endemic inequalities in this industry, as well as the absurdity of considering the workers who process our poultry, beef, and pork to be essential while systematically mistreating them and underpaying them. I spoke with Suzanne Adeli, co-director of the Food Chain Workers Alliance, about the plight of workers in the food chain amid the crisis and what to make of the Trump administration's executive order directing meat processing plants to reopen as a matter of national security. You know, so, you know, Trump's executive order was kind of, in a way, like an extraordinary measure or, I mean, extraordinary is meaning that it just seems a little bit absurd that uh, he would invoke the Defense Production Act, which is like being used in times of war to direct production towards something to impact the, that would um, <clears throat> serve the national interest. And um, to kind of hear this argument that like we have to maintain our, our meat supply um, in, you know, uh, to serve the national interest, which, you know, I know that there are shortages, but, you know, there's not that much scarcity in, 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 in the supply. And, you know, there's other kinds of food that people could eat. So that's kind of interesting. And then, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not, um, it's even enforceable, right? If like, if put to the test. Um, but then again, you know, maybe it doesn't need to be enforceable. His, his words and this, this measure uh, was, it seems to be more meant as a message that they are going to protect not so much the food supply, but the profits of these corporations, right? And um, a lot of people also speculate that it was in response to um, the worker lawsuit against uh, Smithfield 
which was recently um, dismissed, which was to order Smithfield to comply with the guidances uh, by OSHA, uh, that, which are guidances that are sort of uh, meant to sort of guide employers and how to sort of take care of um, take care of the health and safety of workers. Now, the problem is that they're guidances and they're not standards, right? So like being a guidance and not a standard um, from what we understand from what, from what workers and advocates are telling us is that like, it's harder to uh, be able to argue to local OSHA offices who try um, who are trying uh, to say that like you, you have to come in and inspect this and you have to enforce it because uh, it kind of needs to sort of like be a standard to have that force behind it. So, so here, like Trump is calling for uh, meatpacking companies to uh, reopen or stay open and uh, for workers to continue to work uh, without any standards in place really to protect them because the guidance, the guidances themselves are, are not enough. Now, meat processing workers, the thing that people also have to understand is that uh, they, they are also highly susceptible to uh, being exposed and in, in, in contracting the, the, the virus because of the pre-existing conditions that are in uh, these factories in, in the first place, right? You know, workers stand very close, you know, shoulder to shoulder. Um, they work on these assembly lines, which are, are high speed assembly lines, and like uh, line speeds that have actually increased um, in the recent year because the Trump administration, the USDA under the Trump administration has been um, granting more more waivers to companies to increase their line speed. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, workers have not been given, um, for the most part, still don't have uh, the proper protective equipment or sort of the opportunity to do kind of regular um, hand washing or hand sanitizing. And um, even if those measures were implemented now, the fact of the matter is the virus has already spread. Uh, so much with, within within these plants, and um, I was reading an article today about an Iowa Tyson plant where more than fifty eight percent of the workers have been tested positive, um, and so workers are, are are contracting the virus. They're likely exposing their families and their communities and each other, and you know the numbers that we have are also only uh, the amounts that have been tested, right? And then when, when other workers say that, um, um, that they're aware that half the plant has the virus and they're, they, they're too anxious or they're too scared to come in for fear that they might contract the virus as well um, and expose it themselves or their elderly parents. Um, and then uh, what happens as a result is, is, is retaliation. Um, or if, if they say, sorry, I choose my life over the job, then they're also sort of being blocked from receiving unemployment uh, because the companies will uh, fight it and say that they, you know, that they, that they quit. And so and it's important that we continue to work on like policy measures to protect them on like local and federal levels. But like what's going to be really important um, now and in the long run is uh, the ability to support w workers who are 
organizing and many, and many of them for themselves. I mean, a lot of the organizing that you're seeing happening uh, in some of these meat processing and other places has been um, situations where workers not even attached to a union or worker center are having walkouts or having sick outs and saying that like, uh, we're going to stand up for our rights. I mean, in addition to uh, kind of talking to our own member bases as to like what's happening in, in their areas in these industries, you know, in, in the past weeks, we, we've been getting communications from workers in, in random cities and in, in, uh, small cities in rural areas who are in perhaps smaller uh, meat processing plants um, or supermarkets who are just emailing us and saying that, um, you know, we're, we're at risk right now and the employers are not doing anything to protect us and what could we do? And, you know, we're seeing sort of more, more and more of that happening. And um, so, like, it's important for us to really kind of provide capacity for, for those initiatives. You noted that historically efforts to organize these plants, at least in recent history, right, have sort of been shot down. I, I remember a while back, there was a lot of union busting that was particularly targeted at undocumented workers. Uh, my broader question is, I mean, historically, they, they were union jobs and conditions did improve through the middle of the 20th century. And I guess I'm, I'm just thinking, how did it get to the point where it is today? I mean, has there just been churn in the labor force such that unions are weaker or is it been deregulation or the consolidation of the food supply chain? I think it's a combination. I mean, certainly, you know, the consolidation of uh, the food economy, I, I don't memorize a lot of statistics, but I think I do remember, recall that 80% of the global beef industry is, is basically owned by four companies, for example. Um, and consolidation also means kind of the growth of like larger kind of industrial uh, processing and farming, et cetera. And, and just sort of the overall kind of way that uh, the food economy is sort of set up to be um, kind of a process in, in which uh, we can um, companies make, food for as cheap as possible so that consumers can purchase it for as cheap as possible, you know, and that implicates a lot of, a lot of things, right? Not just workers' rights, but also nutrition and consumer rights implicates environmental damage and it implicates, um, you know, um, also, you know, the the rights of, of uh, animals in these situations. But then I think that the other things that you mentioned are, are also, you know, part of the, um, are also factors, um, you know, in, in, in the struggle and, and certainly deregulation. Um, and, you know, that has happened as sort of a result of like big interests in, in the food industry having an influence, not just on Republican, but also Democratic administrations as well. You know, um, and then also, yes, I mean, you know, this is sort of a bigger discussion about like, you know, the power of unions and, and unionism. And, um, and I think that certainly one way that, you know, many industries have uh, tried to kind of like undermine the power of unions is to uh, flock to sort of hiring undocumented workers. And, um, and, and in some cases also, um, but, you know, and, and we know about how, that, you know, that, that's sort of a cycle of like, 
utilizing kind of like the cheap labor of migrants, but then like um, <clears throat> if, you know, those uh, workers themselves begin to organize and we see retaliation increasingly in the um, guise of things like immigration enforcement, for example, right? Um, but, you know, it's not just undocumented workers. I mean, there's still a lot of U.S.-born workers that are in these factories. There's also a lot of refugee workers. And there's also a lot of African-American workers who are also in these factories. And, and I've seen also examples, or I've heard, let's, let's say, right, not seen necessarily, but uh, that, like, another sort of tactic is, like, you know, just like we see reflected in the larger public is, you know, to sort of hit the interests of undocumented migrant workers with African-American workers in the plant and, 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 and perhaps also with white workers, for example. So, you know, there, there are a lot of kind of like forces at play. And, you know, and, you know, we know, I mean, this country has, you know, suffered sort of many, many years of like anti-unionism and, but also, but we, you know, but still unions, <clears throat> some unions are still going strong, uh, but then also we also see in union movements themselves is sometimes a disconnect from uh, what workers in certain localities are also struggling through. It seems like these trends are mirrored more broadly across the food supply chain um, as well. Are you anticipating that the patterns that we're seeing unfolding in the meat processing plants, will those extend to other sectors and other facets of the food supply chain? Yeah, I think we already have. Um, I th- um, in other sort of food processing, you know, we've already sort of begun to see this spread on farms as well. Um, and in grocery stores, you know, and in other also sort of non-food related industries, you know, um, in, in particular, you know, there are a lot of, um, you know, jobs, uh, low, low wage jobs um, that, you know, maybe they don't look like the way a poultry plant looks like, but like kind of suffer from like, um, conditions that like are just could be just as deplorable, right? Um, and and particularly at a time like now, and I, I was talking to like a union colleague in in New York this morning, and whose union represents like janitors and um, like doormen, and and I think also fast food workers, and um, the number of members they've lost to the virus has been over a hundred. Um, and you know, and those, and that's only that's only counted because there's a union there. It counted. A lot of us are both workers and consumers, of course. But given that many of us experience the food supply chain primarily as consumers, uh, what do you want consumers to bear in mind when they see this happening to food workers? What are some actions, or what are some things that consumers uh, should be doing right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, there, there are so many advocates on the ground, uh, sort of everywhere, like workers and, 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 you know, I mean, I've seen also such a, like, a kind of wonderful kind of expression of like support from the children of the workers in the meatpacking places, right? And, um, and I, I know I'm hearing of like some advocates in some localities, uh, trying to organize a boycott of certain companies who's kind of been some of the most egregious players. Um, 
I, I can't um, think of, of sort of any boycotts right now that any of our members have like called for. Um, but that's not like, <clears throat> that's, you know, that's certainly sort of a tactic that they've used sort of in the past. Like if you remember like the boycott against uh, Driscoll Berries, for example, you know, um, so I wouldn't be surprised to see that. And I, I would say consumers should definitely look out for that. I think that, you know, before um, the pandemic, actually like late last year or all, all of last year, our, our members were sort of engaged in this collective kind of um, collect, collective discussions about like, you know, uh, what like their, um, what their story, like, what their story is like, you know, they, they, they've kind of been organizing together under the food chain workers Alliance for about 10 years. And, and it was like coming together to think about like, you know, given all that's happened, like how, how do we want to kind of update what our story is as food workers and what our goals are. And, you know, they, they came up with this, um, you know, uh, this, uh, <clears throat> something that they call uh, uh, like the food workers um, narrative and organizing roadmap, right? And, and essentially said that, you know, we, you know, we're not disposable. Our, our labor is valuable. And, uh, <clears throat> and, you know, uh, we are essential. Like they were saying, they were saying this before everybody now started saying it. And, you know, we, uh, we are sort of centering our right to organize um, to be able to achieve uh, that kind of like equality, right? Um, and here we are now, where everybody is thanking a food, thanking a food worker, and like telling everyone that yes, they are essential. They are essential. Well, and that's really appreciated. But we need for um, consumers who like all of us who are consumers and are part of the food economy, right? We, we need to rethink, we, we need to be aware of like the, the profit driven nature of the food economy. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know how many people also know that the food workers are the largest workforce in the United States. The food industry is the largest industry and food workers have the lowest median wage of any workforce. And, and they have the highest rate of food insecurity than any workforce. So, so that's the irony of being a food worker, right? And, and people, people are thinking a lot also when we talk lately about farm workers and meatpacking and processing, but you know, we're talking about grocery store workers, we're talking about restaurant workers, which also makes them the lowest wages. You know, they still receive sub-minimum wage. In, in many, many places. And come on, I mean, how many work in high-end restaurants where they, where they get all of these tips, you know? We're talking about fast food, fast food workers, talking about hospitality workers, cafeteria workers, you know, um, food workers at airports, you know, it, it, it's, it's at least 22 million workers. Um, and, 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 and they have the highest rate of food insecurity, and, um, which is, is, is just like, um, you know, just so telling, like, you know, of, um, you know, the levels of sort of like exploitation that this, that this food system has. Um, so, you know, 
it's important to join the boycott, but it's also important to raise your voice when you hear that a food worker, a warehouse worker, they're part of the food chain as well. Amazon workers are part of the food chain. You hear that they're um, fired for organizing, that is a good time to raise your voice. That was Suzanne Adeli, co-director of the Food Chain Workers Alliance. We've learned several weeks into this crisis that meatpacking plants are one of the most dangerous hotspots for coronavirus. Last episode, I talked about the Smithfield plant, but there are plenty more. Farm workers and other industries, too, are still working, often without much protection and in close quarters where the virus can run rampant. Food executives are threatening that the food chain might collapse, and while they're not entirely exaggerating, the whole story is a little bit more complicated. To talk to us about all of this, we've brought on an expert on the food system and the organizing of the workers within it, Raj Patel, a research professor in the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas in Austin, and the author of Stuffed and Starved, and then most recently with Jason W. Moore, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. And if you enjoy our interview with Raj, you can catch more of him in a recent interview on our sister podcast, Hot and Bothered, a climate change podcast also found at Descent and hosted by Kate Aronoff and Daniel Aldana-Cohen. So you have been writing about the food system for approximately a million years and the people who work in it, importantly. So first of all, we wanted to start with the cheery subject of why are meatpacking plants one of the top places with coronavirus clusters? Meatpacking plants have been sites of struggle um, for, for for decades in the United States. Um, and, you know, we, you, you've got uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle as, as kind of the, the, the original socialist tract uh, on the meatpacking plants and the struggles that go on, go on in there. Um, but what's been very interesting is, you know, the, the, the Jungle was published in 1907. Um, and... Uh, the, the the sort of call to socialize Chicago, um, which uh, that that, uh, that book famously ends with, hasn't quite happened yet. Um, and instead, uh, the the, the meatpacking industry has um, uh, consolidated. And you've seen, uh, I mean, across the food system and, you know, through the periodic crisis of capitalism, um, uh, you know, most recently in 2008, uh, we've seen increasingly uh, fewer slaughterhouses. Um, as the the food industry becomes more and more concentrated, uh, and that means that there aren't um, you know sort of mom and pop abattoirs, uh, there aren't uh, you know a sort of archipelago of, of smaller slaughterhouses. You've got several um, large slaughterhouses only in the United States, and sometimes uh, you have to cross state lines in order to be able to um, to slaughter your uh, your animals uh, if, if you're a rancher. So the the, the problem then becomes that these uh, you know these these factories. Are, pl- you know, are places where um, uh, farmers and ranchers have no choice but to sell uh, their livestock. Uh, and then within the slaughterhouses, um, they are geared for maximum efficiency. Um, and uh, whether it's uh, poultry or whether it's hogs or whether it's um, uh, cattle, uh, these, are, you know, th- these, these slaughterhouses are set up for workers to be right next to each other, um, engaging in, uh, you know, obviously sort of bloody practices. Um, there, there are uh, incredibly high rates of uh, exposure for workers to um, occupational injury as well. It's one of the most dangerous th- jobs in America. Um, and so, you know, these the, the slaughterhouses are set up to be places where, you know, it's okay for workers to lose a finger. 
Um, and if that's business as usual, uh, then under COVID, uh, you know, where you have frequent occupational injury, um, it's not terribly surprising that uh, in a place where, you know, there's zero PPE um, and there's zero sort of protection for workers or minimal kind of protection for workers at best, um, and where the number of, of inspectors has been dropping uh, as the, the power of the meat industry increases, uh, it's, it's not surprising that these become hubs of infection. Right. So now Trump has put out an executive order demanding that they remain open and OSHA has kind of signaled that it won't be taking enforcement too seriously. So what does that mean in these places that are already kind of horrific to work to work in? Um, it means that workers will die. Uh, and, you know, I mean, the, the, the as, as you've so often observed on Belaved, Belaved, particularly of late, um, uh, and you know, I, I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller here. But you know, I, I'm. Uh, what you've observed is that um, essential is a synonym for sacrificial, uh, and that uh, to be uh, an essential worker is to be the kind of worker, usually a worker of color, usually underpaid, um, you, you know, usually free from the constraints of, of unionism, um, to 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 be thrown into uh, a situation where uh, workers will die. Yeah. So. You beat me to bringing up Upton Sinclair, but, you know, he sort of famously said, I aimed for the public's heart and by accident hit it in the stomach. Um, in other words, it was much easier to get Americans to care about how clean their food might be by the time they get to it than the workers who produce it. But, yeah, so how do we sort of take that information in in thinking about workers during coronavirus? How do we get people to care about something other than just is there coronavirus in their hamburger? I mean, it's it's really hard. Uh, Y'all remember Jamie Oliver um, uh, when he came over to America, and he he, um, he, you know, he he was he was trying to persuade uh, food workers in West Virginia that uh, they ought to care more about the kids and what they ate. And you know, his his series over here, his TV series over here, where he was uh, trying to get American kids to eat better was a disaster for many reasons, not least uh, because he portrayed um, the, the food service workers who are actually, who care most deeply about uh, children and, and their uh, food. He put, portrayed them as the, the bad guys. Right. But there was an experiment that he performed that I thought was very telling. Um, and it was where he uh, took, um, you know, chicken and then he put it in a blender and then he added like gizzards and testicles and eyeballs and things. Uh, and he blended them up and all the kids went, oh, God, that's horrible. Oh, no. Uh, and then he deep fried it and he gave it to the kids. And he said, well, what do you think of that now? And the kids were like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Uh, and th that, that experiment was, was super interesting because he did the same thing in Britain. And after they were deep fried, the kids were, were nonetheless repulsed. So, so in Britain, when you did that with turkeys, the kids were like, no, I'm not going to eat that. Uh, but in the US, um, it, it had been rendered safe by deep frying. And, and to the extent that um, kids in the United States are more saturated with uh, propaganda from the, the food industry, uh, we, can, we can use that to explain how it is that all of us have been stewed in uh, really quite dangerous beliefs about uh, our rights and uh, our thinking about uh, and relationship to food in ways that most of the rest of the planet still find obscene and absurd. Yeah. So uh, it's very hard for, for people to come into the, the United States and, and, and reckon with 
quite how cavalier we are with what it is that we put in our bodies. Most other places won't even consider it. And yet here we are, um, you know, sort of chugging Red Bull and uh, and eating these, these sort of bizarre manufactured meat products uh, that the rest of the world think uh, quite rightly are rebarbative. Uh, you know, meantime, we can sort of inveigh on the, the, the evils of wet markets and how strange the Chinese are uh, yeah. when, you know, quite, you know, quite reasonably, most of the planet thinks that, that most of the things we put in our body are batshit crazy and they're right. Um, so if that's the case, then it's then it is. I mean, it, it, you're pointing to a very deep problem in the U.S. relationship to food and the food system. And it's hard. Uh, but I think, again, you know, the, the, the the history of the food system is also a history of worker action and of strikes and of struggle. And insofar as there have been moments of uh, important uh, solidarity between those who produce food uh, and those who consume it, um, th those moments of solidarity aren't really about, you know, the, uh, the, the 1907 uh, you know, uprising and then demand for uh, clean food, because cle cleanliness and hygiene were were always these sort of bourgeois virtues in the food system that were far less important than uh, driving out, say, uh, Wall Street from the food system, which was uh, an essential part of uh, the New Deal in the 1930s, where farmers uh, were of a piece with farm workers to some extent, particularly in the northern states, um, and uh, where you know all you know, farmers and farm workers uh, were fighting to access things like uh, you know decent uh, levels of, of being able to just consume food, and so you know the, the first sort of food aid and food relief uh, systems were, were put in place then. So I do think that there are moments that we can look to uh, where um, you know Americans did take a different relationship to food, not necessarily by thinking about what went into it, but by thinking about how it was that everyone from the people who seeded it and grew it and processed it to the people who ultimately eat it, uh, ate the food were unified in their disgust with Wall Street. Uh, and I think you know th this is the interesting moment where you know when Upson Sinclair's aiming for America's uh, heart and hits it hits it in the stomach. Um, what there wasn't in 1907 was the, the kind of critique of finance in the food system and finance through society that you do see in the 1930s. And it's it's finance, it seems to me, that's the linchpin in understanding how it is that uh, workers get to be able to articulate their concerns with eaters. Um, what you were saying earlier about uh, the comparative uh, reactions of the UK and the US school kids, I was just thinking about um, how when they were debating sort of what a US-UK uh, trade deal would look like um, last year after Brexit, um, a lot of um, the chlorinated chicken from the US was one big talking point. Yeah. Um, people were so, uh, even, you know, even from the land of mad cow disease, people were still pretty squeamish about um, how livestock was dealt with in the US. So, uh, well, well, actually, the, yeah, well, but, but that's exactly right, Michelle, because of mad cow disease. Um, if, you know, because before that, um, the, you know, the British did have a, a sort of US style attitude of, well, you know, if it's not killing you, it can't be that bad, can it? Um, and and certainly, you know, the, 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 the shift that happened in Britain and, and uh, throughout Europe uh, as a result of mad cow disease um, is one that you can find in, uh, for example, British resistance to genetically modified crops, which you don't see in the United States. And, and you know, the, the real hinge was um, was mad cow disease and really shifting uh, British attitudes to, towards the food system. But, you know, how bad do things have to get here before Americans are like, yeah, well, maybe maybe we should give a shit. Um, yeah. You know, it's
It's, it's a hard question. <laughs> you, you'd think we've, we've hit rock bottom already, but apparently... Oh, no, there's, a, there's always something lower. lower to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, just going back to uh, the conditions inside of uh, the meat processing industry, um, why don't you talk about um, what you see the role of organized labor uh, in the meat processing industry today as being uh, and, you know, whether how that how well that serves some of these broader goals that you're talking about in terms of a more sustainable, more just food supply? Well, I mean, ultimately, um, the meat industry as it looks in the United States is unsustainable. And uh, it's unsustainable because of its carbon footprint. It's unsustainable because of uh, the way that um, it exploits labor, that it demands uh, profligate use of water and of uh, industrial chemistry throughout the food system. Um, and for, for, for those of us concerned with, uh, you know, living on a planet in the future, uh, and in particular concerned with ideas like the Green New Deal, then um, sustainable meat consumption looks much less than, uh, than what we're eating at the moment. Um, and a, a lot of um, meat, uh, you know, in the meat industry, um, the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, for example, um, is starting to think about what it might look like to have a just transition for uh, meat packers, to have a just transition for workers who are currently involved in industrial scale slaughter, um, who recognize that actually there's nothing very sustainable about their work, and you know, who, who recognize that even before um, the, the horror show of COVID. Right. Uh, so what they're looking at is uh, transitioning out of the meat packing industry uh, insofar as the, you know that there is sustainable meat consumption in the United States. It's down to levels of you know less than a burger a week. Um, uh, and uh, uh, what that means is moving away from you know from slaughterhouses uh, towards more sort of plant-based food, uh, and in particular plants uh, and farming. Uh, and a lot of the UFCU's vision is about worker-owned farms and uh, cooperative distribution centers and retail um, that allow workers to be there from sort of farm to fork. Uh, without falling back into sort of uh, misty-eyed 19th-century tropes of family farming, um, right. and uh, but recognizing that unions from, uh, as I said, you know, union-owned land or cooperatively-owned land and union cooperatives from uh, from the soil to you know to, to the, the 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 sort of the final mile of food, is the way in which workers might be able to participate as peers uh, in uh, a food system that looks a much uh, looks like a much more just um, and climate friendly one than the one we have at the moment. And I think that kind of leadership is uh, the, you know the, the sort of vision that we need to be getting out of, uh, of this situation in the medium to to long term. Uh, in the short term, of course, you know we are seeing. Um, calls for boycotts. Um, we are seeing demands for uh, trust busting in, uh, in in the meat industry where JBS and Tyson in particular are, uh, you know, have, have got uh, close to monopoly power, oligopoly power. Yeah. Um, and those kinds of, uh, you know, calls for, uh, uh, you know, a, a diversity of, uh, of slaughterhouses, you know, as with any monopoly, when you break up the monopoly, um, it's not just consumers that benefit, but it's workers as well, because workers are able to, to negotiate higher wages. Uh, th those are certainly some, some of the sort of shorter term demands. But in the longer term, um, it's, you know, it, it's like sort of um, warplane manufacturers or, you know, manufacturers of biological weapons. You don't really want them around. Uh, and uh, for, for those workers who are um, involved in that kind of, uh, in that kind of business, uh, a, a transition out of, you know, these fossil fuel intensive industries as with fossil fuel workers, um, is 
something that unions are really looking hard at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you to elaborate on the, the carbon intensity of meat in just a second, but I wanted to, the thing that I've been thinking about a lot, you know, we heard a lot about general strikes around May Day that didn't really turn into anything dramatic, but I keep wondering about what happens if the people who work in these plants these days are mostly immigrants, they're mostly extremely badly paid and badly treated. Mm. And if that, if all of that terrible treatment, then with a side of coronavirus just becomes a reason for people to say, nope, not doing it anymore. And so I'm wondering if like the, the, the sort of general strike of 2020 isn't gonna be people walking off the job in protest, it's just gonna be people refusing to show up. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I certainly think that that, uh, th that kind of um, again, I'm sorry. Let me take, let me take uh, let me take a moment to think because I, you know, I mean, I, I've I've been seeing uh, your analysis of you know the, how the, the the I mean that the, there's there is a kind of leftist romance of the general strike and yeah. how amazing is that um, and under COVID those kinds of you know the, a, a romance of uh, of general strikes past doesn't help right now um but you know and in insofar as we've all been steeped in years of neoliberal individualism um you know, the the strategy does become well you know i'm, I'm in it for myself and my family i'm not going to show up and i'm going to you know i'm going to pick up the phone i'm going to get on facebook i'm going to tell my my comrades uh not to show up either um but th that actually sort of centralized union action isn't the way that this is going to look in future. Um, I, I, and I think that that's, that's certainly part of it. Um, I, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot recently of the, the, the models of change that mattered uh, under apartheid. Mm. Um, uh, and th that's because, you know, in part, the apartheid regime just made it so bloody difficult to unionize. Uh, right. And so what were, the, what were the strategies and tactics? Um, certainly, they were much more decentralized, right? So, so uh, part of the United Democratic Front in South Africa was a model of each one teach one. Uh, there, there needed to be uh, you know, central, uh, much more horizontal kinds of organizing of people going door to door and engaging in everything from literacy campaigns to, you know, the history of struggle and why it is that we must join with any number of the groups that proliferated in the battle against apartheid. Um, but that model of change now seems much more appropriate. Um, uh, and it seems appropriate for a couple of reasons. One, um, because, uh, you know, as as y'all have called it, um, already you're seeing uh, some governors, uh, you know, waiving uh, workers' rights to be able to collectively organize because of the crisis. Um, but it's also important because, uh, I, I, you know, we're, we're seeing so much of the romance of after COVID, we will never be able to return to normal. Yeah. And the last time I heard that was in, uh, you know, South Africa before the end of apartheid, where uh, everyone was like, it's going to be fucking great. You know, Mandela's going to come and we're going to nationalize the resort. Everything's going to be totally different. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet what happens um, after apartheid? You see, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the consolidation of resources. You see, you see uh, bankers getting their due. 95% uh, of the land that was held by whites before the end of apartheid is still held by whites after the end of apartheid. Um, you're seeing, you know, I, I think that, that right now, uh, understanding what went right and what went wrong in South Africa is very useful for those of us who are thinking about a model for labor organizing and a model for social change, uh, if we're imagining what comes after COVID. Um, in terms of the union organizing on the ground, though, again, 
I, I, I wonder if I might take the fifth um, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, but, but merely observe that people not showing up is certainly one of the, um, the strategies that was used under apartheid, but there were, there were so many. And in fact, that, that diversity of tactics and particularly that, that commitment to educating one another and to decentralize the education to combat the misinformation that was coming from the apartheid state yeah. is a really good idea right now. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the uh, the sort of conversation that we've had around these extremely restrictive immigration laws in certain states in the South and the Southwest, um, and that one consequence of those for a while was, you know, these sort of dramatic articles about, you know, crops rotting in the fields because there was no one to come pick them and wondering what that looks like. And then hearing about, you know, the UK government post-Brexit, you know, anti-immigrant, whatever, flew in a plane load of Romanians to pick crops. Um, so the, the story there is it's super interesting. Um, so it, 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 in Europe, as in the United States, there is a deep dependence on migrant labor to uh, to work for pretty, you know, for, in, in dire conditions for shitty wages in order to feed the country. Yeah. Um, and you know, to, to feed a range of countries. Um, now, in, uh, in in the United States, uh, of course, you know the, the, this most xenophobic of uh, administrations waived. You know, they they, they shut down uh, the, uh, the the Mexican consulate through which uh, certain kinds of, of work visas might be obtained. But then, um, it, you know, it didn't take long for the uh, you know the, for farmers unions and, and and particularly the Farm Bureau to howl um, and. Uh, at that point, yeah. everyone who got a visa last year was let in again this year, no questions asked. Right. Um, and that's a you know that that's that flies absolutely in the face of uh, Trump's sort of promises for um, keeping out the worst sorts of people. Right. Um, in Europe, the the. the, the Initial approach was, for, for example, in France, an appeal to patriotism, uh, right. because they they wouldn't they wouldn't let uh, foreign yeah. workers in because they were unhygienic, uh, and so uh, you know the call was for furloughed workers in cities to um, you know go pick strawberries for France, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know to, to some extent that happened, uh, but in the end um, you know you, you did hear of a number of countries precisely flying in low cost workers uh, to be able to do that because uh, in Europe it you know it, like in the United States it was unconscionable for um, urban residents to reconnect with the land because that work has been so stigmatized over decades uh, that it's it's now literally unthinkable it's you know it's it's easier to imagine cleaning toilets um, for you know for, for, you know, in, in hospitals than it is um, to imagine doing that kind of farm work. But what's interesting is that food was rotting in the fields and milk was being thrown away, not for want of labor. It's right. because of the breakdown of the supply chain, uh, which uh, you know has been rendered so taut and so efficient under neoliberalism that uh, the slightest bump will make will mean that um, you know buyers uh, will drop out and uh, there's no storage system because that's inefficient and you know that that, that that's uh, you know one of the things that, that socialists like uh, and it, it's you know it's the sort of thing that the private sector ought to be able to sop up. And so all of these costs have been thrown back in, onto farmers, but it hasn't been a labor problem. Uh, right. Insofar as the Trump administration has addressed labor, uh, the one thing it has done is something deeply Orwellian. It's, it's proposed um, uh, what's called wage relief, right. uh, which is when uh, farmers get to pay their workers less. Uh, as uh, and, and so the already low minimum wage in uh, for, for farming can be dropped even lower um, because farmers deserve that sort of relief.
there's actually a proposal. It was in place even before the pandemic, but right, they're considering lowering farm worker wages even further now. So um, I guess, you know, to make the job less attractive somehow to uh, to people who would be coming over and picking crops. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm interested in the various ways, I guess, that the, the supply chain is being screwed up now, right? Because as you know, that the part of the problem is where things are going is, you know, the supply chain is not set up for that to change easily? Um, it depends. I mean, the, the, the thing that's very interesting uh, in this moment is, is to recognize that there have always been more than one supply chain. Yeah. Uh, so, so the, the, you know, it, here I am in Austin, Texas, uh, and uh, my friends at Greengate Farm are doing bumper business. Uh, they're, they're, they're about 10 miles away from me. Um, and their CSA is, you know, oversubscribed. There's 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 long waiting lists um, to be able to get to to get their food um, because they're, you know, they they treat their work as well. They are sustainable. They're organic. They're seasonal, and they're really expensive. Um, right. For you know, I mean, I I pay three hundred dollars for ten weeks. Yeah. Uh, and I get a big box of vegetables. Uh, and there's no way you can do that with the uh, SNAP entitlements being what they are. It's just it's just not a, it's, it's beyond the realms of possibility uh, in. Yeah, and, you know, to have that and to be able to, to uh, you know, f feed a family of four or five. Um, so it's it's hard. Uh, and what's what's interesting to look at is how the shorter supply chains have shown themselves far more resilient and robust than mm -hmm. the long supply chains. Um, the long supply chains, of course, are uh, you know, tried, and trusted, tried and tested ways of communicating pain to workers in a, in a range of places. I mean, right now I'm, I'm hearing from comrades in, in Mexico uh, about how it is that uh, demands to gear up and to you know, resume supply uh, of the United States is being transmitted by the US government to uh, industries just across the border in Northern Mexico. Um, and th th these demands that, um, well, you know, obviously US workers couldn't possibly go back to work, but you in Mexico, you probably should, uh, right. are um, you know, part of a this sort of longer pattern of uh, providing low cost workers either directly in the United States or for US enterprises elsewhere. And you know, I think you know, if we're thinking about the food system, then it's important to, to think about how it is that uh, the U.S. comes to depend so readily on migrant workers, uh, particularly from Mexico and Central America. Uh, and in, in part, you know, Mexico and Central America are the latest in a range of places that U.S. imperialism has been applied uh, you know, in order to be able to get cheap migrant workers uh, to work in the food system. You know, because before, you know, before Mexico and Central America, you had workers, for example, coming from everywhere from the Philippines, China, um, northern India. Um, and you know, the, the, those workers have cycled in and out of political uh, favor. Uh, and workers from Central and North America now uh, are, are the ones who are feeding us all. Um, you were just mentioning how dependent we are on, uh, on, you know, foreign labor, um, to basically sustain our food supply. Um, but it's also true that, um, those other countries where they come from are intensely dependent on this remittance economy that has cropped up mm -hmm. around, um, our food supply chain, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about what these disruptions might mean for the rest of the world, including the places where so many of our migrant workers hail from and um, how those families who are dependent on remittances might fare if they're seeing remittances sort of, you know, fall through the floor like they seem to be doing right now. 
Um, it's going to be apocalyptic in short. Uh, before, um, before COVID, things were already fairly crap. Uh, so you had two billion people who were food insecure, uh, which is to say that um, they were uncertain about where it is that their next meal was coming from, or they had to, you know, the, the money ran out at some point during a week or a month to be able to provide food. Uh, and that's not the same thing as starving, um, the, uh, and not, not it's not the same thing as the, the definition of malnutrition, which has been messed around with for political reasons, but essentially now, essentially, it says to be malnourished is not to have sufficient calories to lead a healthy and productive life for over a year. Um, and there are 825 million people who fall into the malnourished category, so fewer than the 2 billion who are food insecure, uh, but still an embarrassing number. Uh, and COVID clearly makes that much worse. Uh, and it, it happens on top of uh, you know, a, a system in which the poorest and hungriest people are usually involved in the food system. Um, mm. you know, it's a sort of commonplace that in the United States, seven of the 10 worst paying jobs are in the food system. Uh, globally, to be part of the, the category of people who are malnourished um, is usually to be a farm worker or someone who is displaced and landless. Uh, and that's, uh, again, you know, it, it, that doesn't happen by magic. It happens through conflict. It happens through climate change and it happens through capitalism. Um, it happens through, uh, you know, the imposition of things like NAFTA. I mean, the, the, the story of NAFTA of, uh, is, is, I mean, is, is, is a, a super interesting tale of how um, in, in the negotiations of NAFTA, the U.S. wasn't going to bring agriculture into the story. Um, they, the U.S. thought, well, you know, why would Mexico want to trade corn? So many of its poorest people depend on corn. And the Mexican government itself brought agriculture into the NAFTA discussions because what it wanted was to modernize its agriculture sector. Uh, it wanted an industrial agricultural sector like the United States. And it saw that trade with the United States would be a way of bringing in the invigorating uh, winds of, uh, of, of, of capitalism uh, into ejidos um, and into uh, peasant agriculture. And so what that meant was that uh, Mexico started importing corn from the United States. You know, we subsidize our corn um, it, here uh, and Mexicans, uh, Mexican farmers couldn't possibly compete with U.S. farmers and the industrial agriculture that they had. So Mexican farmers were driven off the land initially into the cities to, be, to work in maquilladoras uh, and sometimes across the border to work here. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that, that sort of perfect circle of creating uh, you know, poverty in, in Mexico and then, uh, you know, U.S. farms supplying uh, crumbs from the table in order to be able to send back as, as remittances is how, you know, these neoliberal trade arrangements work under, you know, for, for, for the agriculture sector and for agricultural labor. But now you've created a situation where people can't afford to farm on the land and uh, that uh, where sort of able-bodied young people are working uh, in service work or in, in, uh, in agriculture in the United States. When that money flow dries up, it's a disaster um, because there's, it's not even now as if there's robust agricultural supplies available back in the home country because they're, they're reliant on imports. Uh, and so you're seeing uh, food price inflation around the world, particularly in, in low income communities that would ordinarily have been able to grow their own food and survive these storms. Uh, so it's, I mean, you know, the, the UN is predicting an additional uh, 100 plus million people who are malnourished. Um, and that increasingly looks like a low ball count. Yeah. And so as we start to see problems or hear about maybe overblown problems, um, we're probably going to talk about shortening the supply chains, local production, all of that. Um, and you started to talk about this with the trade deals, but how do we sort of 
think about these problems with a globalized food chain without falling into the sort of cheap nationalism that is so prevalent right now? Um, I mean, reparations has to be part of the discussion. Uh, and that, you know, I, I think it is one of the dangers um, that I've seen in some of the discussions of uh, Green New Deals, that they are incredibly parochial. Uh, mm-hmm. And particularly when it comes to thinking about the United States or Europe um, and the Green New Deals that are, that are circulating in some quarters there, they can be incredibly chauvinist. Uh, so I, I certainly think that um, recognizing that uh, the United States owes reparations for the damage it has caused through direct foreign policy interventions like in Guatemala or, you know, I mean, the, the, you know it, it's histories of, of sort of warmongering and imperialism directly, but also through things like the World Bank uh, and the, the, the loans that, uh, that the bank continues to extract uh, payment for from, from the global south. Um, and then, you know, th- thinking about how it is that uh, the U.S. Has, has facilitated the extraction of resources uh, and the prejudicing of food self-sufficiency and food sovereignty in the global south. Uh, those kinds of discussions are vital. Um, you know, and this is not to mention sort of slavery and not to mention you know, uh, genocide that made this country possible in the first place. But having that idea of reparations front and center, uh, I think, is vital if we are not, as you say, to, to fall into the, well, you know, let's just all get our vegetable boxes and everything's going to be great. Um, because you know, I, I do think that those kinds of international, political, e- economic uh, ideas are important. And then, of course, you know, if, if we think about what the, a, a genuine Green New Deal would look like, it is about care and repair. It is about recognizing the importance of the kinds of labor that systematically have been left out of um, the, you know, the, 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 the purview of the state in terms of uh, labor regulation and whether that's farming or whether that's domestic work. Um, those are uh, areas of engagement and struggle that um, need to be front and center if we're thinking about what the new normal might look like. So going back to the, the issue of uh, trade deals, um, mm. it, we often sort of debate trade deals uh, in this country in terms of winners and losers. And uh, often, you know, U.S. agriculture or, you know, more specifically, maybe agribusiness has been seen as one of the biggest winners um, in, in these sort of asymmetrical neoliberal trade deals that we've um, arranged with countries mm-hmm. around the world. I, I guess, do you do you see a role for um, some sort of global, um, setting some sort of global framework of rules for how uh, agricultural production is managed and, and traded uh, around the world? And, and I guess, what would you, what would that look like? Um, in terms of laying a new sort of uh, foundation for a more just system of agriculture that acknowledges that we live in a, you know, a, a system where um, the food supply chain is globalized, but also, um, you know, trying to make it as as uh, non-exploitative as possible. Well, I, I don't know what it would look like. Um, I mean, my suspicion is that it's going to involve a lot less of us having coffee and chocolate and bananas. Um, uh, and and that you know I I I say those things just because um, it it goes right to the point that everyone's terrified about you know living without coffee and chocolate and bananas. Um, but let's let's just rip that band aid off immediately and uh, talk about what it you know why why it is that that kind of world is probably a better one um, because the international peasant movement La Via Campesina um, has a, a vision for what a, a, an international system might go through in order to get to these rules. Uh, And their vision is uh, an idea of food sovereignty. Food sovereignty is the idea that communities 
uh, can and should within their sort of within their, their communities, within their nations, um, within their states, debate and ensure the best way for each of those communities to be able to feed themselves. Uh, so it's a tilt much more towards ideas of food self-sufficiency. But it's not just about being self-sufficient. It's also about being powerful enough to be able to demand things like gender equality in food production, which you know, we are very far away from uh, in the United States and indeed most, most other places. So this idea of food sovereignty puts on the table questions like land reform. Uh, and when you look at how it is that land has been distributed to be able to get us our coffee and our chocolate and our bananas, um, this this is land that has been fought over often for you know for, for for decades by movements that want to take that land back and redistribute it to local you know to, to local farmers and local peasants so that they can farm it, uh, and to have a process of food sovereignty operating simultaneously in lots of different countries would be to engage in the kinds of discussion and the kind of politics that might indeed lead to land reform. And that land reform might indeed then uh, lead to discussions about, well, how, it is, how is it that we're going to feed ourselves? And how is it that we're going to develop a food system that's much more robust in terms of climate change? We can't just be exporting bananas to the highest, highest bidder. Uh, we do need, uh, you know, if, if we are going to engage in the export economy, it has to be done on terms uh, that we decide as peers rather than through the bullying of the, the multilateral system. Uh, and that kind of far more horizontal um, sort of syndicalism um, is uh, the the model that uh, is compatible with uh, food sovereignty and one that I, you know, I, I think is, is a, a much, much more just approach to international exchange than uh, the food system looks like at the moment. But, you know, I mean, it, it's it's one of many outcomes that, that, that might emerge from food sovereignty, because food, food sovereignty itself is a process of people deliberating together and deciding what they wanted. And, you know, the, the first outcome from the deliberative process of food sovereignty was a demand for gender equality in the food system. Um, and, you know, land reform may or may not be a central part of that. It depends on which part of the world you're looking at. But uh, I certainly think that uh, a multilateral trade system that's based on the kinds of principles that Levia Campesina has, with you know, developed through its 300 million, sorry, 200 million members, uh, and through the course of decades, offers a better vision for a process to getting to the rules that you're asking for, Michelle, than um, anyone in any one individual can come up with by themselves. Yeah, it also seems like food sovereignty, like the conversation around food sovereignty, might look pretty different in the United States from uh, compared to elsewhere in the world. I, I guess it sounds like you're you're calling for a somewhat more decentralized approach, but also one that's, you know, built on some basic core principles that can be extended that's across right. different countries. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's a, it, it has to look different here. I mean, it'll look different in, you know, in Austin than it does in Houston, frankly. Um, and uh, that's, that's probably okay. Uh, I mean, I, I think that there are, um, you know, the, 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 the difficult part is precisely the, the, the tension between um, what flies domestic? You know, what, what flies within one geography, and how is it that that, that gets reconciled with the demands of uh, what flies over a larger geography or a, 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 you know a, 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 across states and the demands that one community can make upon another? But that that's what's interesting about food sovereignty is that it is uh, in that way sort of radically democratic, uh, but it does also bring to the service precisely these relations of power that need to be interrogated, which is why it's it was so interesting that the first thing to come out of 
this deliberative process of food sovereignty was was around, around gender. I mean, you know, people often assume that peasants are uh, these sort of throwbacks to the 19th century and they're all sort of backward and missing teeth. Uh, and it's always about men uh, being in charge of a patriarchal family farm. But for Via Campesina to say, actually, no, the first thing that matters about food sovereignty is that there should be gender equality is a very 21st century demand. And it's one that's yet to be realized. Um, so in thinking about recovery from this crisis, which we are still very much in the middle of, no matter what Trump thinks. Um, people are talking about, as you mentioned, the Green New Deal as another way out of the you know economic depression we're basically ending up in. Um, but so in a recent talk that you gave, um, you were stressing the point that the original New Deal only happened because there was mass worker unrest and the government was legitimately afraid that there was going to be a communist revolution. Um, so I'm wondering if you have some thoughts from the lessons of that particular fight that working people could use right now? Um, th thank you, Sarah. The, the, <laughs> the, the, that, <laughs> Tell us how to run the revolution, Raj. <laughs> um, well, in my handy pamphlet, Patel speaks. Uh, no, uh, um, the, 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 the talk that you're, you're referencing, Sarah, very kindly, it was one that, that uh, Jim Goodman and I um, sort of plotted on for a little bit. Jim uh, is the president of the National Family Farm Coalition. Um, and uh, we, we were intervening in a, a series of discussions uh, around what a New Deal might be by bringing in um, history from the food system. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, we were uh, doing things like pointing out uh, the 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 Texas cowboy strike, um, which happened uh, in in these parts uh, in the, uh, the the late eighteen hundreds, um, that were sort of precursors precursors to the sort of strike activity of the Knights of Labor, um, but were importantly connected to ideas of uh, sovereignty and finance. And I, I think that this again this, this sort of returns us to where we began our conversation, uh, that insofar as um, there's, you know, th there's been transformative change uh, in in the United States, whether it's through the Great Depression or whether it was through populism. Uh, there's always been a, a very clear pointing of the finger towards financial capital. Uh, and what I'm missing in many of the discussions now around the the world after COVID yeah. is a discussion about how it is that we um, you know, that we lend uh, and that we uh, expropriate Wall Street and redistribute. Uh, because understanding the mechanisms through which financiers are not only controlling the, the debate around reopening the economy, uh, but also um, have their tentacles deep into the Democratic Party and uh, have their, you know, have an agenda that is so, so far very successfully hiding itself. Um, in terms of you know the the recovery and where it is that the money is ultimately flowing, um, that's going to hamper our ability for genuine and deep transformative change. Now, of course, you know workers understand this rather well, um, but insofar as we un, you know that the, the, there is organising that's happening peer to peer, that's organising uh, through the mechanism of each one teach one again to return to, to, to the South African model. I think we do need much more. Um, research and education conducted by everyone uh, into what banks and what financiers and you know what hedge funds and what union pension funds are up to, um, because these are the kinds of questions that we need the answers to and we need to be able to uh, articulate uh, in our opposition to the advance of uh, finance capitalism, because the, you know they're the ones who are going to be driving us into the ground. 
um, and driving this plant into the ground along the way after the recovery. So yeah, I, I do think that uh, you know the the, the the talk that, that Jim and I um, were uh, you know, the, the, you know the, the analysis that we were offering in that talk was very much an analysis not merely uh, of observing the importance of people going on strike, um, but much more about the, the the sort of targeted action that comes in everyday resistance to capitalism uh, and and to, to to finance capital. So whether that's about farmers. Um, refusing to be evicted from their farms uh, after they default on mortgages, um, or whether that's about sort of uh, what, what's called a work a farmer's holiday, where you know the the, the song and the farmer's holiday was about uh, how um, you know Wall Street can can eat its uh, silver and gold while farmers will eat their food. Uh, and the, 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 there are these, uh, you know, these understandings of the, the, the flows of finance capital that are very old in U.S. labor history uh, that I, I think are worth resurrecting and worth you know, reinvigorating through um, through you know, concerted strike. We're well, not just strike action, but concerted organizing and mobilizing because it's finance that, that's going to be the key to either our downfall or uh, some sort of victory after this. Hmm. Okay, so um, to end with. Um, since we're all implicated in the food supply chain, um, either as workers or more likely as consumers, um, and and we're all in some way, at least in this country, uh, kind of dependent on our industrial system of uh, cheap food production, um, can you talk about how we should respond to this crisis as consumers? Um, you know, is there something that we can do? I mean, uh, there have been sporadic calls for boycotts and things like that, but you know, I, I guess is there. Is there something that um, that as consumers and as decision makers over how we purchase and use food um, that we should be paying attention to right now? And along with this, um, maybe one sub question is uh, um, you mentioned the wet markets before. and We haven't really talked about food and public health in this conversation, but can you just mm -hmm. sort of address kind of the, the weird hysteria that we, that's going on around wet markets, these so-called wet markets? Because from what I hear, it seems like the idea of a wet market is a lot closer to the kind of. Um, food supply that you think we should have, and <laughs> like you know, yeah, that's it. Um, it, I, I, the, the, the technical term for this is Orientalism, isn't it? Um, yeah. the, that uh, in, yeah. in the United States we have farmers markets, but in China they have wet markets. Um, and of course, you know, a wet market is just the opposite. You know, it is it, in China where it is that. Um, small farmers get to be able to go uh, because their supply chain has been consolidated as well, um, and you know they're they're fighting off the the big supermarkets and the big dry markets uh, that uh, in you know that industrial agriculture in China has been able to dominate and monopolize. And so wet markets are the places where you get fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, Orientalism I think you know is the the, the the technical term to describe the hysteria that and the moral panic. Uh, that's uh, attended this idea. Um, so, you know, and, and it is, it, again, it, it's super interesting that uh, insofar as we have been talking about public health, we've, you know, we've been observing that it is through uh, you know, the, the, that slice of the public that, that constitutes the, the workers in meat factories that uh, have been sort of in the front lines of all of this. Um, you know, where in North Dakota, uh, the biggest hotspot was a, a Tyson meat factory. Um, and th there, there are definitely ways in which a more robust and healthier food system might come from these shorter supply chains. Um, but, I mean, in terms of what it is that we can do as consumers, y'all will, will be familiar with this as a, a you know, a, as, as a sort of Trojan horse question, because it, it, it does 
open the door to the kind of individualism and green consumerism that is toxic to building a, a good labor movement because it, you know to, to ask the question well what should i shop for um is is already um to, to uh, you know sent us down a path that doesn't open open us up to solidarity uh, but you y'all are not asking that you're asking about um, you know, what is it that we can do to support food workers? Um, and the Food Chain Workers Alliance has five things. Uh, and so I, I, I would, first of all, encourage folks to, to check out the, the, the organizations that form far, part of the Food Chain Workers Alliance. Um, but what they're calling for is uh, call on government to act to protect all workers, uh, demand that big food corporations provide basic, you know, sick pay, hazard pay, family leave, and the right to respect the right to organize. Um, uh, you know, look up uh, again at the Food Chain Workers Alliance to see how you can support food worker organizing, uh, donate di to direct needs and to food worker funds, and share resources with food workers in your community. Uh, and those five things are, you know, what workers want uh, through, you know, as as sort of voiced through the Food Chain Workers Alliance. But it's going to vary in different places. So, you know, in Iowa, boycotting meat um, is a demand that's been made by uh, one organization, one Latino organization there. Um, but, you know, it depends on where you are. Uh, but I, I certainly think that, uh, you know, in, in, in the intermediate, uh, you know, in, in, in the short term, following the, the many demands that a lot of food working, you know, of food worker organizations are, are putting forth is a good way to go. Excellent. And we will have more on that particular Iowa boycott very soon as I talk to one of the organizers today. Um, but, yeah, so thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. Thank you both so much. I'm just such a fan of the show and 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 for uh, of of y'all. So thank you, thank you, thank you. You're listening to Belaboured, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Raj Patel, a research professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. My pick for ARG is Monopolies in Meat, Endangering Workers, Farmers, and Consumers by Ron Knox in The American Prospect. As we discussed with Raj Patel and Suzanne Odelli, the pandemic has dramatically exposed the outrageously dangerous conditions in the meat processing industry. The rising death toll among workers, as well as the shocking rush to reopen plants that were shuttered due to public health concerns, says a lot about where the priorities of this industry lie. Yet it's not just the hyper-industrialization of our food supply chain or the erosion of workplace safety regulations that have led to the horrific conditions in meat and poultry processing plants. Ron Knox of the Institute of Self-Reliance explains that one major reason that labor in this sector has been so debased is simply because the corporations that control it are too big. The failure of antitrust laws to check consolidation in the meatpacking industry has led to a regression to jungle-type drudgery throughout the workforce. Meatpacking industry jobs today are known to be extremely rough and dangerous. The sector employs not only many low-income people, but also many refugees, undocumented immigrants, and incarcerated people. And they are daily subjected to horrific rates of injury and other health problems. And that was well before these plants became a seedbed for the coronavirus pandemic. Now that we're experiencing short-term meat shortages due to the plant closures, there has been more public discussion of turning to more eco-friendly alternatives like organic and grass-fed beef. 
Knox mentions some of the family-run operations that produce this kind of meat, small-scale specialty slaughterhouses that look more like the bucolic ideal of the family farmer, you know, the type of agriculture where pigs and hogs are butchered individually instead of using gigantic churning machines. Now, setting aside the broader debate about whether to eat meat at all, organic or biodynamic livestock agriculture is seen as a sustainable alternative to concentrated animal feeding operations and virus-laden processing plants. And historically, Knox writes, small-scale meat production was more common. Quote, just 40 years ago, most Americans got their meat from a far more diverse and local collection of businesses. Small ranchers would raise livestock and sell it to local feedlots to fatten, which would then move those animals to regional slaughterhouses to break them down into meat destined for wholesale or retail distribution. Unquote. Back then, meatpacking jobs were in many cases unionized and actually paid decent wages. In the 1970s, however, a series of mega-mergers combined with weak regulation led to a few companies like Smithfield and Tyson gobbling up smaller slaughterhouses and replacing the previous livestock processing ecosystem with a few giant monopolies. The dramatic vertical integration of this industry has created a very tall house of cards. And all it took was one deadly virus to tip the whole industrial system toward collapse. Knox says that the small-scale slaughterhouses and producers that still remain don't have anywhere near the collective capacity needed to sate the country's enormous appetite for meat, particularly really cheap meat. That's because the government has, over the past few decades, allowed big agribusiness players to scarf up the entire market. He writes, quote, Decades of unchecked consolidation and captured regulation have created an industry in which any breakdown on the road from farm to market can threaten our ability to feed ourselves. It's amazing to think that the most powerful economy in the world is now in danger of destroying our ability to feed ourselves in a nation that prides itself on having everything in excess, including burgers. The current where's the beef dilemma reveals the ugly underbelly of industrialized agriculture. Supply chains have been fine-tuned to fit a just-in-time logistical system, and the ultra-efficiency means that there's absolutely no give in the system when things go catastrophically wrong. Knox notes that smaller beef and pork producers have little ability to challenge the meat processing monopolies because federal antitrust regulation has been gutted over the years. There used to be this thing called the Grain Inspection Packers and Stockyards Administration, which was designed to check monopolistic practices and to protect small producers. But that got axed by the Trump administration. Ironically, smaller slaughterhouses say that they too have trouble getting the business that usually goes to the big meatpacking plants because they're excluded from the mainstream and mostly useless meat inspection regime. Bureaucratic efficiency seems to serve only the very top of the corporate hierarchy. Why is the monopolization of the meatpacking industry dangerous for workers then? Because these massive corporations not only become the dominant suppliers of the meat in our grocery stores, but also the dominant employers of an extremely marginalized and disenfranchised workforce. To change conditions in the industry, workers need to be organized and willing to refuse work in unsafe conditions, as many have already done in recent weeks. But workers and consumers should also be conscious about what they're really up against. The goliaths of meatpacking have been artificially propped up by the regulatory failure of a neoliberal food system. On a visceral level, many people, including small farmers and processors, chafe against these monopolies and want to overturn their dominion. All of these links in the supply chain, from the people who eat the meat to the people who butcher it, wield more power than they know. In the meatpacking plants, we've seen business as usual get temporarily disrupted by a global pandemic. Maybe a global mass movement of workers and communities can force business as usual to finally grind to a halt. I don't often arg New York Times stories because, frankly, they get plenty of accolades. But this piece, titled Three Hospital Workers Gave Out Masks Weeks Later They Were All Dead, by Nicole Hong, needed to be written, and I literally did make a little strangled noise because I hadn't written it yet. The piece begins, quote, 
They did not treat patients, but Wayne Edwards, Derek Braswell, and Priscilla Caro held some of the most vital jobs at Elmhurst Hospital Center in Queens. As the coronavirus tore through the surrounding neighborhood, their department managed the masks, gloves, and other protective gear inside Elmhurst, a public hospital at the center of the city's outbreak. They ordered the inventory, replenished the stockroom, and handed out supplies, keeping a close count as the number of available masks began to dwindle. By April 12th, they were all dead. End quote. This is a story, of course, about the hospital workers who are not doctors or nurses, but are also putting their lives on the line every day without sufficient protective equipment. They are the cleaners, the guards, the chefs. They are the unsung workers of the healthcare system, often underpaid and badly treated at the best of times, and this, for many hospitals, is the very worst of times. At least 32 of those non-medical workers have died in New York City during the pandemic, according to the Times. Hong continued, quote, These workers make some of the lowest wages in hospitals, and they are more likely than medical staff members to be Black or Latino. In New York City's public hospitals, 79% of the workers who assist doctors and nurses are Black or Hispanic, compared with 44% of the medical staff, according to the most recent city data. In the early weeks of the pandemic, when even emergency room nurses had to reuse N95 masks for days at a time, non-medical workers were often given less protective gear than their colleagues who treated patients, or none at all, according to union leaders and hospital employees. If you work in a hospital, you are exposed to the same kind of virus as doctors and nurses, said Carmen Charles, president of the union that represents 8,500 non-medical staff members at New York City hospitals. I understand management wanting to ration supplies, but at what cost? Ms. Charles, who leads Local 420, part of the Umbrella Union for City Workers, said some of her members had been denied the N95 masks that were reserved for doctors and nurses. At least 11 of her members have died, she said, end quote. That union not mentioned in the piece would be AFSCME District Council 37, known as DC 37. Anyway, Hong writes, quote, Many hospital employees worked as long as they could after they felt sick, driven by financial necessity and a desire to help their overstretched colleagues. This is a story we all know, and it's the flip side of the essential workers story that's being told right now. Essential, as many of those workers have pointed out, also means sacrificial. The workers are frustrated at best and at worst, as this story illustrates, they are dying because of neglect. Their work, whether it be serving food, scrubbing floors clean of contamination, or handing out essential protective equipment while denied it themselves, is essential work. And this should be a reminder that, quote, reopening without giving everyone proper protections is a recipe for more death and the losses of more of these workers who did underappreciated work in dangerous environments day in and day out, and no less than doctors and nurses saved lives while giving their own. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on the food chain, workers organizing under coronavirus from graduate students to grocery store workers, and essential workers' demands for rights and respect. Thank you again to Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and Colin Kinneberg for editing us and making us sound good every week. Thanks to you for listening, and even more thanks to you if you have rated us on iTunes, shared us on social media, promoted us to your friends, or generally propagandized on our behalf. An extra special thanks, of course, 
always to our belabored sustaining members. Just $5 a month gets you an excellent belabored tote bag. You can find out more about all of that at descentmagazine.org slash belabored dash membership. And we would appreciate, especially, especially appreciate your support right now if you are still getting paid. We know those unemployment numbers are horrific. For the cost of the beers you can't have at a bar right now, you can help us keep producing the stories of working people and everybody who's getting laid off in a major crisis. You can also read more belabored stories at the Descent Magazine website, descentmagazine.org belabored, where Michelle and I are doing daily interviews with workers all over the country, organizing, rallying, fighting layoffs, and for protection on the job. If you want to share your story of work under coronavirus, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are a school employee or hospital worker, if you are cooking or cleaning or carrying packages right now, if you are fighting for more rights or having yours taken away on the job, you can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. We will be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.